Good morning. Uh, before we begin our sermon today, I wanted to talk to you about some exciting news regarding our For the Mission campaign. Uh, many of you probably know For the Mission, we started a couple of years ago to accomplish uh, a few different things in our congregation. The biggest, though, was to completely eliminate our debt. We had $1.7 million worth of debt when this campaign started from a previous renovation project. And I'm happy to tell you that right now, the total we have is around $109,000. By the end of this week, when our next uh, mortgage payment goes out, uh, our debt retirement payment goes out, we'll be under $100,000 in debt, which I think is amazing. Now, here's the really good news. We're going to keep making those payments over the next couple of months. Our, our financial year ends at the end of September. If we keep making those payments, which we will, and people keep giving to For the Mission like they've been doing, and if we continue to have a budget surplus, because right now our church is in a great position financially. God's been really faithful to provide through you and your giving. And meanwhile, we as a church have really cut spending from last year. So we're running at a surplus. If that all continues, in other words, if you and I continue to give faithfully over these next couple of months, there's a good chance we'll have enough surplus that we can apply that to our debt and we could retire this debt completely. And that means we could start the next year's budget with $148,000 that we can spend on ministry instead of debt retirement. And I think that's really exciting. So let me just say thank you for your faithfulness so far and let me encourage you to continue to be faithful to give both to our budget and to the For the Mission campaign so we can knock this debt out completely and focus everything on ministry. So we're in Proverbs 31 today, Proverbs 31 verses 10 through 31. And those of you who know the Bible really well are probably thinking, well, it finally happened. Jeff has completely lost it. The preacher has got COVID head and he thinks it's Mother's Day at the end of July. And the reason you would be saying that is because Proverbs 31 is often used by preachers on Mother's Day. It's the passage about the, the godly wife. Now, I've never preached on Proverbs 31 before. I've never preached a Mother's Day sermon before. That's just not my habit, my practice. I don't really observe secular holidays in my preaching. I talk about Christmas because the birth of Christ is in the Gospels. I talk about Easter because the resurrection is the core of our faith. But otherwise, other holidays I don't usually uh, observe in my preaching. But we're going to talk about Proverbs 31 today and not focus on mothers or even specifically women. This is a sermon for all of us. Proverbs 31 is written by a man named King Lemuel. Most of you probably know that Proverbs, for the most part, was written by Solomon, the second king of Israel, the son of David. But chapter 31 of Proverbs, written by a guy named King Lemuel, who honestly we know nothing about besides what we see in this chapter. There's nothing else about him in the rest of the Bible or in secular literature. Some think that this is a pseudonym for Solomon. Others think this was some Middle Eastern ruler who we just don't have any records of. What we do know about him is found in this chapter, and that is that King Lemuel had a very wise mother, because what he writes down in chapter 31 are the words passed down to him by his mom. And the biggest section of it is a part of the Bible, or is a, is a, a section that talks about how to choose a good wife, how to choose a wife who's going to make you better. 
The most famous words, of course, are about how charm is fleeting and beauty is, beauty just doesn't last. We as men tend to choose a wife, fall in love with someone who we're attracted to physically, who we find beautiful to the eye. And, And what she's saying is not that physical beauty is a bad thing or that it's irrelevant, it's just not the most important thing. I remember hearing Tommy Nelson, the senior pastor of Denton Bible Church once, and he was addressing a congregation full of young adults, some of them engaged to be married and others newlyweds, and he said, everybody, take a look at the person beside you. Look at your beloved. They are never going to look any better than they look right now. This is the best they are ever going to look. And it got a good laugh, and he was right. His point was, your spouse, your, your fiancé, their physical attractiveness is not the main thing. Character is what counts. And that's what King Lemuel's mom is telling him. Find a woman who doesn't just please your eye. Find a woman who has good character, a woman who is a good person. And what evidence does he tell her to look at? Not the quality of her family or uh, how she speaks. She says, take a look at the quality of her work. The way she does her work is going to tell you what kind of person she is. That's why we're in this chapter today. We're in a series called Your Story at Work. We started last week by talking about how your work is a calling. And when I say your work, I mean your career, if you're a career person. I mean, if you're a student, the work you do in the classroom, the, the, the work you turn into your teacher, if you're a homemaker, the work you do in keeping the house up and taking care of your children, if you're caring for an elderly relative, a parent, a spouse, any kind of work you do, even mowing the yard, even chores around the house, the work that you have is not a curse. It is not a career. It's a calling. It's an opportunity to serve God. That was last week. Today, we're going to talk about how the work we do is an opportunity to display to the world the change that Christ has made in us, how our work tells people who we really are and therefore who Christ really is. And that's, that's a way of thinking that a lot of Christians have to change their minds to get to because we have a tendency to separate our work life from our spiritual life. You ask a Christian, uh, what is your spiritual life like, or how mature are you in Christ? And they'll talk about how often they go to church. They'll talk about, I don't use cuss words. I avoid these vices. I contribute to these charities. I volunteer over here. And all of that's great, but their work life is not part of the equation. They don't talk about the quality of the work they do. I'm reminded of uh, a man in Tim Keller's congregation who came to him and said, uh, you know, I'm an airline pilot. What, what would it mean for me to be an airline pilot who glorifies Jesus? And I'm sure he was thinking that his pastor would say, well, uh, start a Bible study for all the other pilots and flight attendants and, and, and flight crew and, and win them to the Lord that way, which would be fine, but that's not what Tim Keller said. He said, if you want to be a, a specifically Christian flight uh, a pilot, The main thing is land the plane safely and on time. See, the quality of the work we do speaks. The quality of the work we do matters. The way we work tells people who Christ is. I know I've shared this story before, so indulge me. But 
when I was growing up, we lived in the country. My dad had uh, always had a garden behind our house. Uh, and when he would water this garden, sometimes the water would, just because of the way the ground was sloped, the water would flow towards the house. And one day in the summertime, when I was about 12, my brother was about eight, he came to us before we went off to work and he said, okay, I got a job for you boys today. I want you to dig a trench at the bottom of the garden between the garden and the house to make sure that the water gets collected in that trench instead of flowing into our backyard. So my brother and I went outside before it got too hot. We started in the middle and we worked in opposite directions. And I was digging as fast as I could. My mentality was when I had a job to do that I didn't like, do it fast, get it over with so I can move on with my life. I had dug a couple of feet and I turned to look at what my brother was doing. And he was working much more slowly than me. And not just because he was four years younger. He was being very meticulous in his work. He would dig a couple of scoops and then he would take a flat-headed shovel. We called it a sharpshooter. And he would square up. He would flatten the edges of his trench so that it was completely straight, so that it was completely uniform. And I said to him, Billy, what are you doing? You're wasting time. Don't you understand? It doesn't matter what this trench looks like as long as it's there, as long as it catches water. You're going to be out here all day, and I'm going to be done in 30 minutes. Now, he didn't listen to me because he was my brother. He was going to do things his way. So as a result, I was done pretty quickly and sitting inside in the, in the air conditioning, drinking iced tea, and laughing at my brother who worked and worked for the rest of the morning. And then my dad got home that afternoon. And if you've ever had a younger brother or sister, you're, you'll know how painful this was for me because dad called us outside and he stood there in front of that trench, which looked very unusual because in one direction, the direction I had dug, it looked like uh, just sort of the, the result of some random seismic activity. It was just this jagged scar across the ground. Whereas my brother's side was perfectly straight. It looked like something done by the Army Corps of Engineers. And my brother's an architect today, so we should have seen the seeds of that even back then. My dad said, Billy did a good job. You did a terrible job. He said, I know you don't think it, it matters what this looks like, but you need to understand the quality of your work tells people who you are. And that's especially true when you do a job that you don't really enjoy or you don't really care about. The quality of your work tells people who you are. And I've never forgotten that. I can't promise you I've always lived up to those words, but that lesson stuck with me. He's right. The quality of our work tells people who we really are, and it tells people who Jesus is in us. So with that long introduction, let's read this passage, starting with verse 10. An excellent wife who can find. She is more precious than jewels. The heart of her husband trusts in her and he will have no lack of gain. She does him good and not harm all the days of her life. She seeks wool and flax and works with willing hands. She is like the ships of the merchant. She brings her food from afar. She rises while it is yet night and provides food for her household and portions for her maidens. She considers a field and buys it. With the fruit of her hands, she plants a vineyard. She dresses herself with strength and makes her arms strong. She perceives that her merchandise is profitable. Her lamp does not go out at night. She reaches her hands to the distaff and her hands hold the spindle. She opens her hand to the poor and reaches out her hands to the needy. She's not afraid of snow for her household, for all her household are clothed in scarlet. She makes bed coverings for herself. 
Her clothing is fine linen and purple. Her husband is known in the gates when she sits among the elders of the land. She makes linen garments and sells them. She delivers sashes to the merchant. Strength and dignity are her clothing, and she laughs at the time to come. She opens her mouth with wisdom, and the teaching of kindness is on her tongue. She looks well to the ways of her household and does not eat the bread of idleness. Her children rise up and call her blessed. Her husband also, and he praises her. Many women have done excellently, but you surpass them all. Charm is deceitful and beauty is vain, but a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. Give her of the fruit of her hands and let her works praise her in the gates. Now, a lot of us have heard that passage before, and some ladies are like, man, I've been beaten over the head with this passage before. But what doesn't come through in English is this is actually a poem. Hebrew poetry didn't rhyme the way English poetry does. Hebrew poetry had different characteristics. It was, it was designed in certain ways. There are two ways this is poetic. Number one, it is an acrostic poem, which means that every line starts with a successive letter of the Hebrew alphabet. The first line starts with the Hebrew version of A, Aleph, and the last line ends with Tav, which is the last letter of the Hebrew alphabet. But even more significant, it's not just an acrostic poem, it's a chiastic poem. Now, I don't have time or really the ability to explain to you what chiasm was and is, except to say the whole point of creating a chiastic poem was to say the middle verse of the poem is the key to interpreting it. It was, the whole purpose was to point the eye of the reader toward the very middle of the poem. So what's the middle of this poem? What is the key verse? It's verse 23. Her husband is known in the gates when he sits among the elders of the land. See, in ancient times, in every city there was a gate, and at the gate would gather the elders of the city who would sit and discuss the matters of importance. They, they were sort of like the city council. They were the most important decision makers, the movers and shakers of the town. Now, in the ancient world, for a man, what did success look like? Today, success is you've got, uh, you, you drive a fancy sports car, or you've, you've bought a nice house in a nice neighborhood, or you have a corner office, or you've got six-pack abs. In the ancient world, success was you walked up to the elders of the gate, and they would rise to greet you, and they'd say, hello, Joseph, hello, Isaac, hello, Hezekiah, and they would treat you with respect. That was the sign that you had lived a successful life. So what King Lemuel's mom is telling him is, if you want to be this kind of man, marry this kind of woman. If you marry this kind of woman, she'll make you into that kind of man. She will make you a better person. And by the way, it's not what the sermon's about, but that's really great advice for people who are seeking to get married someday. If you want to, if you want to know whether you should marry someone or not, ask yourself the question, does this person make me better? Does this person inspire me as a Christian, do, does he or she inspire me to follow Christ more diligently, more fervently? Do, do, are they a good influence on me? Ask your parents, ask your loved ones, your friends, do you like me better now that I'm with this person? Now, what does that mean for us as employees, as workers? What it means is, in the same way, the, the good woman is an asset to her husband and makes him better, our goal at work should be to make our organization a better organization. We should be an asset. 
We should be the kind of worker that when our boss lays his head on the pillow at night, he says, man, thank God I hired him. Thank God she's part of our company because I don't know what I'd do without him. In, in fact, if, if every Christian's like them, I, I need to hire more devout Christians in my company. Uh, your coworkers should say, you've made this in work environment a different place, a better place. I'm so glad you're here. I know I can count on you. I know that you're someone who is an asset to me and makes me want to work harder. If you're a, a student, you, your goal needs to be to be the kind of person who inspires your teacher, who encourages those who instruct you. Because let me tell you, your teachers got into education not because they wanted summers off, but because they had this idea, I'm going to influence the next generation. I'm going to make the world a better place. And after a few years, it gets discouraging. You, you, you deal with with incompetent administrators or critical parents or students that don't care and, and all these regulations that don't seem to really apply to education, and you start to think, what is this really about? But if you, if you can be the kind of student who your teacher looks at and says, this is why I went into education, this is why I come to work every day, then you're representing Christ well. So how do we do that? How do we, how do we become an asset to those around us? How do we reflect well on Jesus through our work? We're not going to go through every verse of this poem, but what I've done is I've, I've summed it up in three broad categories. The things that make this woman an asset to her husband are the same things that would make us an asset to our organization, and they come down to three main categories of qualities. So in a way, you can see the rest of this message as a sort of performance review from the Lord. This is God sitting you down and saying, okay, in the future, here's what I need to see from you in your work. So you ready? Number one, there's diligence. There's diligence, which is simply the, the desire to work hard and get the job done. Verse 15 says that this woman gets up before dawn. Verse 18 says her lamp burns late into the night. It's not to say that, that we shouldn't rest. It's not to say that workaholism is of the Lord. If that were true, then God wouldn't command us to observe the Sabbath and to rest at least once every seven days. But what it is saying is we need to work hard. We need to do what is necessary to get our work done. Verse 27 spells it out differently. It says, she does not eat the bread of idleness. And if you've ever read Proverbs, you know one of the main themes of the book of Proverbs is how wicked it is to be lazy. It talks about the character of the sluggard often, the person who is so lazy and, and so slothful that they let everything go and how destructive that is to themselves and to others. And I know, I know laziness is something we all struggle with, although ironically, as long as I've been a pastor, I have never once had someone come to me and say, you know, Jeff, I really have to confess to you that I, I have a problem with laziness. We all struggle with it, or most of us do, yet we rarely acknowledge it as a sin. And if you are the kind of person who has a tendency to try to get out of work, has a tendency to try to let someone else to take your, take your responsibilities or, or to say, well, that's not my job. You need to acknowledge that before God and say, God, you need to change my heart and teach me diligence. The second thing, the second characteristic we see in this woman is competence. Now, this is a woman whose main task is what we would call homemaking. She is building a home 
for her children or her husband to flourish in. And so she has certain expectations. They need to be fed. They need to be clothed. They need to have the, th- the things that their physical bodies and their emotions require. And she's good at those things, but she goes above and beyond that. She does things that uh, a homemaker in the ancient world wasn't expected to do. Like, uh, for instance, she buys real estate. She invests wisely. She plants a vineyard. She makes clothes and sells the leftovers. She becomes a source of income to her family in a time in which women weren't expected to earn money. She goes over and above. And not only that, verse 21 tells us she plans ahead. It says that she has no fear of the snow because her family are all clothed in scarlet. And what that refers to is the the climate of Israel was very similar and is very similar to the climate of Texas. We don't get a lot of snow, neither do they. So what Lemuel is saying, what Lemuel's mom is saying is, when it snows, it doesn't take her by surprise. She's ready for anything. She has planned ahead. Verse 22 says, her clothing is fine linen and purple. In other words, she's presentable. She's well-dressed. She makes a good impression. She's attractive. And all these things that we've mentioned, all these things that, that make her an excellent mom and and wife and and manager of her household, these are skills that she had to learn somewhere along the way. She had to choose to learn uh, what it means to be well-dressed and how to predict the weather and and what it takes to get her family ready and, and how to invest and how to plant and how to make money for her family. These are skills she's acquired along the way, which means she's constantly trying to improve as a worker. So how does that apply to us? When we're given a task whether it's something on our job or at school or something that we have to do at home for someone else, even if we have to learn a new skill to do it, we need to do it with excellence. Now, one of the, one of the blessings of living today is this certain little application called YouTube. And I can't tell you how many times I've thought to myself, I don't know how to do this. Let me see if there's something about it on YouTube. And it's there. There are lots of resources you can use to learn new skills. There are lots of ways you can increase your knowledge base and your skill set. And that's what we should do as Christians. That's how we glorify God, by being good at what we do. And let's be honest, too many of us are more like I was with that trench. And we're given a job, and it's something we don't really see the importance of. And so we say, eh, I'm just going to do a half-hearted job of this, get it over with, so I can move on with my day. That does not glorify God. Everything that we do should be done with excellence. And that brings me to my third point. This woman doesn't just have diligence and competence, but she has a gracious spirit. And this is the part that won't appear on a job description. No no job you apply for is ever going to say, we're looking for someone with a gracious spirit. But this is the part that should separate us from non-believers. You don't have to be a spiritual person. You don't have to be a follower of Jesus to work hard or to be good at your job, although you should be but only Christ can give you a gracious spirit. This is what should separate us. This is what should make us stand above. Verse 20 says, she opens her arms to the poor. In other words, she's not just taking care of her family physically. They become a lighthouse to their community. They're taking care of those who Christ loves, who the world turns their back on. She is a generous person and she's teaching her children and her husband to be generous too. Verse 26 says she speaks words of wisdom that 
The words that fall from her lips bless those who hear them. Her, her, her husband and her kids are better people because of the words they hear her say. Verse 25 says that when others are anxious, she can laugh at the times to come. In other words, other people get scared, but she can live with joy. What we're talking about is a, a family who, because of this woman in their life, their wife, their mom, they don't just have what they need, they actually enjoy life. She's made them a stronger, happier family because she has a gracious spirit. And that's, that's what we should be in our work. I, I did a funeral years ago for a woman named Myrtle. Myrtle died in her late 80s, and up until about 10 years before that, she had worked many years as a crossing guard. Now, in this community where we lived at the time, the crossing guards, at least in Myrtle's day, used to wear uniforms that sort of looked like police uniforms. So if you can picture this, this little bitty woman with bright white hair and this blue uniform holding a stop sign with a whistle between her teeth who took her job very seriously. People who saw her said she looked like a soldier out there. She was very precise in what she did. One of my favorite stories uh, was about the time when a car was roaring towards her and she stopped the kids. They didn't cross at that point. No one was hurt, but this car was going way too fast. It was a really fancy, expensive car. And as it passed her, she took her stop sign and whacked the side of the car with it. So of course, the driver hit the brakes and, and locked it up and, and it came to a skidding stop and he jumps out. And as soon as he jumps out, she recognizes him. This is the mayor of their city. And he says, what are you doing hitting my car? And she said, you're going too fast. You need to slow down. And this little bitty five-foot-tall gray-haired woman made the mayor back down. He heard it, and he said, you know what? You're right. And he apologized. He got back in his car, and he went on his way. This was Myrtle. Myrtle was someone who took her job seriously, who did her best to protect her kids, but she also had this gracious spirit. She, she always had a smile on her face. She knew the kids by name. She talked to them. She prayed for them. She knew their parents. She was a blessing to everyone who met her. So I did this funeral, and, and we talked about everything there was to know about Myrtle. And afterwards, I got down, and they filed everyone past the casket to say their final goodbyes to this beloved sister, this pillar of the community. And people, several people came to me and got out of line and shook my hand and told me, good job, preacher, because that's the way people are in a situation like that. They want to be kind. And as I'm standing there, this young woman gets out of line and she comes up to me and she stands there in front of me. And I just stood there waiting for her to say, good job or thank you. I appreciate that. But she didn't say anything. So after a few moments, I said, is there something I can do for you? And she said, yeah. I want to follow Jesus. I want to be saved because I want to be like Myrtle. And that's the only time that's ever happened to me. That's the only time I've ever had someone get saved at a funeral. And it happened because this was a woman who did her job well, who worked hard, who was good at it, but most of all, who had this gracious spirit that drew people in. And see, Jesus... Jesus can teach you to be a diligent worker. He can make you someone who works hard and takes pride in working hard. He can make you competent. He can teach you how to pursue the skills that you need to do your work with excellence. But he can do something that, that uh, pure effort won't do, and that is create in you 
the picture of the gospel, that you can be you can be salt and light in your office. You can be the fragrance of the knowledge of the glory of God that, that just like when you walk into your office with a bag of food from the local barbecue joint and everybody smells it and says, hey, can I have some? You can be the kind of person who whenever you walk into the office, the scent that's coming off of you is the scent of the gospel that is attractive to people, that they look at it and they say, I want, I need some of what she has some of what I see in him. And over time, that draws people to Christ. The way you do your work tells people who you are and what Christ has done in you. And Jesus can do that to you. Jesus can make that change in you. See, that's how he is. When he came into this world, he was given the most important job description ever. His job description was save humanity, conquer evil, defeat death, defeat sin, defeat evil once and for all, and rescue my people. And he did it. It cost him everything, but he did it. And he didn't do it grudgingly, and he didn't do it griping under his breath, and he didn't do it half-heartedly. He gave himself fully. He gave it all. He died on the cross for us with forgiveness on his lips and joy in his heart. And what Jesus' work revealed about him was that he loved us more than he loved himself. It revealed that he's more powerful than sin or death or the forces of evil. It revealed to us that salvation is found only in him. And he can create that same spirit in you and in me. And the only question is, are we going to let him Are we going to let him invade our work lives instead of just inhabiting some little sacred corner of us where we pretend to be Christians over here? Are we going to let him take charge of the way we do our work? I think it's a good idea, don't you? Think of all the good he can do through us.